Our scripture reading for today will be from Matthew 22, starting with verse 15 and going through the end of the chapter. You can follow along as I read, or you can turn in your copy of the scripture. It says in verse 15, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the thing and to God, the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died. And having left no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, Which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David, and he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Let's pray once more. Father, as we come to your word now, we would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts in these next moments would be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray that through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, by whom you have made us acceptable and made yourself Accessible, 
We pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us, the spirit of knowledge and insight and wisdom, the fear of the Lord, counsel and might would fall upon us and would enable us to not only grasp the truth, but to be sanctified by the truth and to walk in the truth. We ask all this for the glory of your son. Amen. Well, we continue this morning through Matthew. Matthew chapter 22 is where we are, making ourselves chapter by chapter through this narrative of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we come to the 22nd chapter here. And 22 is very much connected to 21, what we saw last week, where we saw in chapter 21 the authority of Jesus beginning to be challenged and Jesus himself asserting his authority in a way that we have not seen up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew. We said last week that Jesus has typically been, while he's been front and center in a lot of controversy, he's also been laying low, playing it behind the scenes, trying to keep what he tells his disciples under wraps for a period of time. But now, as we saw last week with the entry into Jerusalem and the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree, he begins to now assert his authority in a way that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, and the general population begin to recognize as something different is happening now with Jesus. And so Matthew is writing in such a way in chapter 22 with just this continual barrage of questions Jesus begins receiving. As he begins to assert his authority, there is becoming significant pushback to him. Such that one question after another question after another question after another question is strung together in this portion of Matthew to give us an idea of how Jesus is receiving this pushback, but also how he himself is pushing back with declarative authority as the Son of God. And so this morning, what I want us to do is walk through these series of four questions that Jesus has asked. You may have noticed that as Thad was reading for us. There is a series of four questions and answers, each of them having a slightly different emphasis and area that Jesus is addressing. For instance, in verses 15 through 22, which is the first area, or first question and answer session that Jesus engages in, is all about politics. It's a political discussion. The second area is a marital Discussion or a relational discussion having to do with the Sadducees question about marriage and the resurrection in verses 23 through 33. The third question and answer session is a moral discussion. It has to do with the law of God and a lawyer approaching him and asking about the law of God. And that's in verses 34 through 40. And then finally, in verses 41 through 46, we have a spiritual discussion with the identity of Jesus being front and center. So that's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to look at those four question and answer sessions, figure out what the question was, what the answer was, and the lessons we are intended to learn, at least some of those lessons that we're intended to learn from those question and answer sessions. So we're going to deal with the political, the marital, the moral, and the spiritual this morning because those are all areas that Jesus addresses to the religious leaders in this chapter. Now, before I get to that, though, there is a first part of this chapter, the first 14 verses, which I'm not going to deal with this morning. Verses 1 through 14 are are a parable of the wedding feast where Jesus is illustrating a similar story and parable to what he's told in the previous two parables of Matthew 21. The parable of the two sons and the parable of the tenants, which we touched on last week. And all three of these parables are intended to hang together. 
So Matthew 22 could technically still be part of Matthew 21. We know Matthew didn't have chapters and verses in there. But it all hangs together in the sense that he has one overarching message that he's trying to communicate through these three parables, both the parable of the two sons, the tenants, and the wedding feast. And the issue is to illustrate the rejection of God and his authoritative son by the people of Israel. They are not receiving Christ as the Messiah. And so he is pushing back on them with illustrations and parables. The two sons parable in chapter 21, verses 28 through 32, is illustrating that instead of obeying Jesus, they are disobeying. They are not receiving the son. They are rejecting the son. That's also illustrated in the parable of the tenants, as we saw last week, with them not just rejecting the son, but killing the son, which will eventually happen to Jesus himself. And then in the first 14 verses of Matthew 22 with the parable of the wedding feast, instead of coming to the banquet that the father has offered to the people of Israel, they have rejected the invitation and they show up later without a wedding garment on. And therefore they are cast out because it is too late. So instead of coming to the banquet, they delay. So today we're going to see in Matthew 22 verses 15 through 49 the authority of Jesus challenged through a series of exchanges. And you'll notice the result of all. I just want to point out the result of what happens when you challenge Jesus. Okay, so see what happens here. Every single time. And for instance, with the political discussion in verse 22, Matthew writes, when they heard it, they marveled and they left and went away. With the Sadducees discussion, notice verse 33. And when the crowd heard it, They were astonished at his teaching. Same thing. Notice what happened in verse 34. And when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And then finally, verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is our Jesus This is our Messiah. This is our Christ. The one who, when he is confronted by the most ridiculous questions and the most deep and profound questions, is able to answer people in such a way that they not only, they're not always satisfied, because some of them are deeply offended by his answers, but nonetheless, where no one feels compelled to say anything else. Jesus has the final word. And so one writer says, nowhere is Jesus' clear-headedness and coolness under pressure more evident than here. Amid these final controversies with the Jewish authorities, he is surrounded by enemies of every kind and assaulted with every conceivable kind of trick and trap. Yet he alone is in command and in control. It is his enemies who are put to confusion and shame. So let's dive in. Let's look at this first interaction A political interaction. Here's the question. Verse 15. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know. Listen to this dripping with insincerity. Just dripping with insincerity. We know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully as they lie. As they lie and you do not care about anyone's opinion like they do. (laughs) 
And you are not swayed by appearances like they are. I mean, it's just flattery to the core. It's deceptive. Jesus knows it. That's exactly why he calls them out later in these verses, just a few verses later in verse 18. Why you put me to test, you hypocrites? I know what's going on here. I know what's going on here. You're not fooling anybody. So they come to him, and the question is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? In other words, is it permissible for the people of God to express allegiance to a pagan emperor through the payment of tax? Now, that may sound a little bit foreign to us because they weren't a democratic republic, and they weren't under the rule of a president. They were under the rule of a Roman Caesar. The denarius that Jesus is referring to was a coin... And on that coin, there was a portrait of Caesar, the emperor, along with the inscription describing him to be the son of a god. And so you can understand the why they're trying to set this trap. Because that if they can get Jesus to acknowledge that the Jews are supposed to pay taxes to Caesar, then the people would have seen that as allegiance to Caesar. That they are recognizing that Caesar is the son of a god. And they would be committing adultery, spiritual adultery, against Yahweh, the God of Israel. Yet at the same time, if they can get him to deny it and say, no, they're not supposed to pay taxes or they shouldn't pay taxes, well, then they've got him trapped too because he would be seen as leading a rebellion against Roman rule. So they're trying to trap him. They think they, they, you can imagine them plotting this behind the scenes, coming up with this trick question. We're finally going to get him. We finally found the question that's going to make him stumble because he's going to have to pick one of two options and neither of those options is going to be good. Everybody's going to recognize it as a bad option and we've got it. Now let's come up with some flattering phrases so we can get him trapped. Let's come up with, oh, Lord, we, teacher, we know you're true. You're not deceptive. You teach the way of God truthfully. There's no, you don't care about anybody's opinion. So I got a question for you. You can just see the insincerity again. But how did Jesus respond to them? He responds very succinctly. Show me the money. Show me the money. And so they give him the money. They show him the denarius. And Jesus said, who's on that? And they say, Caesar's on that. And he says, then it belongs to Caesar. But there's certain things that belong to God too. And give God those things and give Caesar his things. So what is he saying? He's saying, give to Caesar his taxes, pay your taxes, and give to God what is required of God. His tithes, his offerings, our lives. But what he's saying in doing this is that he's trying to break a category that they're carrying in with them, which is if you pay taxes to the Roman emperor, you must worship the Roman emperor. And what he's saying is that allegiance in tax does not constitute allegiance in everything. That political and spiritual allegiance are not one in the same. See, we learned something very important here about politics. That there, there is such a, a reality as what we might call and what historic Christians and reformers have, ty- have called sphere sovereignty. You may have heard that term before. What that term means is that God has assigned to certain areas of the world, namely the, the church and the state and the family and, and, every, and other areas, certain responsibilities that belong to those areas and that are not intended to be carried out by other areas. For instance, the family's not meant to charge taxes to the state. 
or the, 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 the church or the, the, the state is not meant to run corporate worship services. So there's certain areas of sovereignty that God has given within his world to certain groups. The church and the state, they are different in their responsibilities. The, the church has a task and the state has a task, and those must not be confused. And Christians are called to support both. For instance, we are to render to the state what is due to the state. We see this in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let me read at least a few of those verses where Paul writes to the Roman Christians under Roman rule, and he writes to a church under Roman rule and tells them the following. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval, for he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing pay to all what is owed to them taxes to whom taxes are owed revenue to whom revenue is owed respect to whom respect is owed honor to whom honor is owed no comment on that just reading it for you first Peter chapter 2 Peter picks up a similar theme and says in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, Mark Additional word, Nero. And it's amazing if you think about what Peter and Paul are writing here and what they're instructing Christians to do. They're instructing Christians that in as much as doing so would not require you to violate the law of God to submit yourself to the governing authorities. Now, there is an inherent danger in this, isn't there? Because that while we pledge our allegiance, in some sense, to our country, we do not pledge ultimate allegiance. Especially if the state should become the perpetrator of evil rather than the restrainer of it that God calls it to be. We have a higher citizenship, brothers and sisters. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what one writer says about the responsibility that we have and the danger that, that, is a, that, is a long, that comes along with that responsibility and how careful and wise we must be as God's people in our relationship to the government to not be in rebellion against it unless it is perpetrating evil. There is pressure, this is what one writer says, quote, there is pressure from the side of Caesar, the government, that subjects be utterly submissive and totally subservient to the point of rendering adoration to Caesar as divine. But there's also pressure from within the subjects themselves. There's pressure from us as citizens of a country. What is that pressure? Writer goes on to say, it's easy for those who pay taxes then and now to depend increasingly upon their overlords to provide an abundant life. 
The effect of these twin pressures is that Caesar becomes a rival god, both demanding and freeing, freely receiving the subject's ultimate allegiance. So here's where we see, for instance, where additional instruction in the Bible would caution us to be to beware of giving our ultimate allegiance to the state. For instance, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Paul describes to the Thessalonian Christians the gravest peril that can arise when the state ceases to be that which restrains evil and becomes instead the chief perpetrator of evil, which in some instances we're seeing in our own country. In Revelation 13, 1 through 18, where the beast state becomes that which is enacting evil in the world, not restraining evil in the world. So therefore, we do pledge our allegiance to our country with a desire to submit to the governing authorities for the sake of the conscience, for the sake of our conscience, for the glory of God, for the sake of the gospel. But we pledge our ultimate allegiance to God and we pray for the state. Jesus first imperative, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, only becomes meaningful and operative when it's firmly based upon the second, give to God what is God's. Normally, one obeys the second, that is give to God, by obeying the first, but one may have to obey the second instead of the first. In other words, there may come a time where, like the apostles did in Acts chapter 5, where you have to say, we must obey God rather than men. But we don't do that willy-nilly and for any objectionable reason because the government doesn't do something we like. They have to be actively perpetrating evil in the world. So 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. That is when we pray for our leaders. It is pleasing in God's sight. And especially when we pray for our king, for kings and all those who are in high authority so that the gospel may advance. So that the climate of the relationship between the church and the state is such that the gospel can advance. So who desires all people to be saved, Paul says, and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, I know that in doing that, that that saying things like this opens up a ton of questions. It does. It does. And this is hard stuff. And this is why we need the church and not just a sermon. Because what God has called us to do as God's people is to wrestle with the scriptures together. And to, and to, with, with God's help and spirit and wisdom to help each other work through difficult issues of conscience. But I think Kevin DeYoung, in a recent article that he put out this week about the whole election season and all the craziness that's going on right now, has a good word for us. And it's a good, it's a good ballast and foundation for us. And it needs to put steel in our spine and encouragement in our spirits so that we can face this with a biblical heavenly kind of perspective. He writes, I am interested in politics. Always have been. I follow the ups and downs and ins and outs of the campaign season closely. I love my country, and I care about who wins and loses. Elections have consequences. Yet, I'm much more interested in the church. My church and the church. Brothers, if we... I'm going to come back to the rest of the quote in just a minute. Let me insert this ellipsis. 
Brothers and sisters, if we allow the, the, the craziness of this election season and all that's happening and all of our fears begin to surface and all, all the, all the activity and all the just nonsense and ridiculousness that's going on, if we allow that to affect us, do you realize that you're rendering to Caesar far too much? You're not rendering to God the things that are God's. You need to do that. Render to God your soul to God. Your conscience to God. Your prayers to God. We have to render so that, and that will orient us around what is most important. Trump and Hillary is not going to be in the discussion 10 trillion years from now, but the church will be. And the church will still be around. And so I'm not saying don't care about that. I'm not saying don't be prayerful and concerned and wrestle through what our responsibilities are in all this season. I'm just saying render to God the things that are God's. The church, his glory, the gospel, our souls, our ultimate rest and hope. And don't place it in the state. God forbid I just read so much stuff. It's coming on the news, on Facebook, social media. Just coming out, coming out, coming out. You would think sometimes that Christians have lost, that think Jesus has stepped off the throne of the universe. And that somehow the gospel's doomed. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has faced down far greater threats. And the church has seen far greater dangers. And I do believe the church is still standing. And it will continue to stand because the gates of hell and no political process and no election will prevail against it. Concluding Young's quote, our fidelity to biblical truth, our personal holiness, our sincerity, our consistency, our ability to speak with grace and truth, our unwillingness to confuse the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of Christ, our realism in the midst of utopian promises, our hope in the midst of fear and loathing, our winsome witness to the gospel to embody these realities week after week is more important than what happens on the second Tuesday in November. End quote. I know that opens a can of worms. We got to go on. (laughs) Question number two, marital. Marital, a marital question and a a resurrection question. The Sadducees come. Instead of rereading the text, let's just summarize it. So the Sadducees think they've got Jesus trapped too, and they come to him and they create this really crazy story. Uh, You have to understand the context of the story, okay? So the context is Moses' instructions to Israel in Deuteronomy 25, where Moses states that if a man died without children, then he had, and he had a living brother who wasn't married, then it was the obligation of the brother to take the widow of his wife as his wife, the widow of his brother as his wife, so that his dead brother would have children and offspring. It was a way of honoring the brother, honoring the family, and preserving a dignified legacy. So, with Moses' instructions to Israel in those days, in Deuteronomy 25, the Sadducees think that they've got Jesus totally trapped. And so they come to him and they say, okay, so we've heard about this leveret marriage whole issue in Deuteronomy 25, and I've got a scenario for you. Explain it, Jesus. Okay, so we have not just one brother, but seven brothers, and they all marry this one woman. Each of them died before they could have children with the woman. So she's been married seven times. So Jesus, I got a quick question for you. 
whose husband is she going to be in the resurrection? Because, see, the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. They think it's ridiculous. And so they, they know Jesus does, as the Jews did. And if he was a good Jewish prophet and teacher, he would too. So they're going to try to, they think they've got him trapped. But Jesus, again, instead of saying, just show me the money, he responds very quickly with, you don't know the Bible. You don't know the Bible. (laughs) He says, you're wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. They thought he had him cornered. And here's a lesson for us. Be careful when you object to Jesus, but you don't know the Bible. There's lots of people that object to Jesus that don't know the Bible. How many people do we know that have objections to Jesus who have never read the Bible? And I'm kind of old school with people like that. I'm like, hey, if you haven't read it, we can't have a conversation. You got to read it. You got to read it. Once you read it, then we can have a conversation. But if you haven't read it, we're just pooling ignorance here. So the main assumption the Sadducees had that they thought Jesus would share is that if there is a resurrection, it must mean that a resurrection life would be basically the same as a life here on earth. Jesus and the Bible do not share that assumption. There is some relationship between life now and life there, or it could hardly be called a resurrection, but that does not imply that everything will be exactly the same. There will be continuity and discontinuity. And one of the areas of discontinuity is the reality of human marriage as we know it now. Jesus doesn't say, you notice in his response in verse 30, that we will become angels. He doesn't say that. He says we're going to become like angels in this one respect. Angels don't get married. Notice what he says, verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, we'll get to that in just a minute. Jesus doesn't say we're going to become angels, but he does say we'll be like them in one respect that we won't be married. So when he continues to go, then that answers their objection. I mean, that 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 silences them because they were making the assumption that Human marriage is going to exist in the resurrection, that this is going to be a real problem. This is going to be an awkward moment for this woman and all those seven husbands. I mean, it's just going to be real weird. So what's it going to be like? And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. It's not going to exist that way. It's not going to exist that way. And just to tack on something about the resurrection, since he knew that the Sadducees did not believe in it, says it in verse 23, that they say there is no resurrection. He tacks this on just as a biblical argument to get them thinking and irritate them a little more. He says, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Back in Exodus, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus said, takes them back and he says, when God addressed Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3, he referred to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And just so you're sure about this, they were dead. They're already dead. But God refers to himself as their God. So could this living, saving, covenant-keeping God establish a relationship with the patriarchs of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob only to see that covenant terminated by death? 
No, to be the God of someone is to to be their God in such a way that you provide a caring, protecting relationship, which is as permanent as the living God who makes it. And so his implication is they're still alive and I'm still their God. And they're going to be raised from the dead on the last day. So he confronts them about this whole issue of marriage. He confronts them about the resurrection. What are some lessons that we can draw from this interaction about the marital question and the resurrection question that Jesus receives? Christian, this is good news for us. God will be our God forever. Just as Abraham was in covenant with God, so according to the scriptures, all those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. If we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are sons of Abraham, which means the same thing that God said about Abraham is what he says about us. He will be our God forever. He is in covenant with us, and he will cease to be God before he ceases to be our God. Which means that we can face this life with unbreakable confidence and boldness. Knowing that, as we sang earlier, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever, and we are a part of it. So that's why Luther could write, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. Because he knows that that's not going to keep him from the kingdom of God. Nothing can strip the kingdom of God from the Christian. Because God has pledged it to them. And even as we continue to grieve with our brother Dwayne and Ruth and sister Ruth over the loss of Lynn, we know where she is because she had a God and he's the living God and she's alive because he's alive. So, also, a word about marriage here. I don't know about you, but have you ever been reading this text and this passage and, and it makes you a little sad, especially if you're happily married? And it makes you, I, maybe I'm the only one. <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one. Marriage exists in, the, in this life, as we understand from the book of Genesis, as a covenant of companionship because it's not good for man to be alone and God wills that there be children born and the earth be propagated. Neither of these realities take place in heaven and therefore marriage is not needed. There's no children, no bearing of children, and no aloneness because we are with the people of God and with our God. But here's the good news, and I want to encourage you with this. Even if marriage is no longer an institution in heaven, in a sense it will be an institution. It will be its ultimate purpose, namely the marriage of Jesus Christ to the church. Marriage is still a reality. It's just reached its appointed consummation. I want to encourage you that even though human marriage, I should say, is no longer an institution in heaven, love will be. Love will be. I envision it this way. In this fallen world, the closest relationship that I have with any other human being is the one I have with my wife, Katie. I do not think that the love I have for her or the love that she has for me is going to be removed from heaven, even if we're no longer married. Rather, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. So what one writer says, in the resurrected state, marital relationships will be transported into a higher key, incorporated into a new order of existence and made part of a deeper reality. The glory is that we will have that kind of communion that we enjoy with our wives and husbands, with everyone. 
the kind of relationship of closeness and intimacy and love and fellowship will be characteristic of our relationship with all the saints of God. The only bride in heaven will be the church, the bride of Christ. And all the people who are part of the bride will enjoy our communion with each other and our bridegroom Jesus to such a degree of felicity, joy, happiness, and blessedness that marriage, by contrast, will be a very poor substitute. Neither I'll guarantee you this, neither my wife nor me will want to be married on earth again. <laughs> We're like, okay, I, we loved it. We loved it. But man, to give this up, are you kidding me? No way. So the issue is not loss in heaven. It's gain. It's gain. It's where we can be united. Because remember, even though your husband and wife, your brother and sister first, if you're if you're both Christians, your brother and sister first. That's your fundamental identity is brother and sister in Christ. So lack of sex or lack of marriage does not in any way diminish heavenly bliss. In the life to come, all interpersonal relationships will, not, will no doubt far surpass the most intimate and pleasurable of any human relationships that we know now. Such will be the power of God to glorify and fully sanctify his people that the unity, freedom, and intimacy now that's most fully experienced in Christian marriages will flood all the relationships among the people of God. And that, friends, is a great thing to look forward to and something we have because our God is alive and he is our God. Third question, moral. Moral. Jesus has not been overcome. The Pharisees and the Sadducees have not succeeded, but the Pharisees are going to recruit some others and try to see if they can help. At least one of them is going to, one of the Pharisees is going to give it another go. So we see in verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, assuming probably a Pharisee, since the Sadducees were silent, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great com- greatest commandment in the law? He's a lawyer. He should be concerned about the law. I'd be concerned about lawyers who weren't concerned about that, right, Tim? No lawyers in Cliff. No, no lawyers we don't want that aren't concerned about the law. That's their job. So this teacher... Or this lawyer asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't necessarily answer it, but he, instead of answering a specific commandment, he answers a summary commandment, which is what the, all, all the commandments are getting after. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law. And the prophets. So in a sense, rather than answer with a specific commandment, which he, which he essentially does, those are commandments, but rather they are serving as a summary of all the commandments. In fact, loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as, a, as yourself is as best a summary of the Ten Commandments that we can come up with and that Jesus himself teaches and Paul reinforces. So we understand that he answers the question, And what he's most importantly stressing is the foundation and goal of commandments. See, this lawyer is just interacting on the basis of law. And that's not what God is after. 
He's not after a relationship governed by law. That doesn't mean that the law does not have a place in defining what love is in a relationship. Of course it does. But it just means that he's approaching this as a lawyer on the basis of law, similar to probably what the rich young ruler was doing, which is trying to figure out what he has to do to get right with God morally. And Jesus, like he does with the rich young ruler, goes right to the heart and says it's about love. Love is not against law, but love and law are not the same thing. Law shows us what love looks like, but our relationship with God is not fundamentally founded on law as if law is the goal of it. The goal is a heart that loves the Lord and loves people. And so notice what he says. He, he draws it out. He draws out love's focus, which is God himself, relationship with God, and also the passion, which is to characterize that relationship with God, which is a love for him that is filled with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. Everything that we are is to be given over to love for the Lord. But there's also a natural consequence of that love for God, which is love for people. And notice that love for others, that love for our neighbor is to be characterized by unselfishness and comprehensiveness. Is there any person that we are obligated to not love? I think the Bible says love your neighbor. Not Doesn't qualify it in any way. Love your neighbor. Love the person that's in front of you. And notice the characteristic of this love is to be unselfish. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Quick question. This, does this undo you?